You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. I'm your host, Brandon, and this week, Allison is off because she most likely had her baby, and she's taking time to be with her baby. So she'll be back probably next week or sometime very soon. But until then, I've got a fun show for you today, a few things to talk about, um, but getting a little bit of stuff out of the way to start with, I wanted to say that Tara, if you remember her, she was she's with fermentation on wheels and she has been roaming the country spreading the word of fermentation. She was on episode 51 and I'll put that link in the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 79. She had a radiator that went out on her bus. It was corroded and falling apart on this old bus that she's remodeled to turn into her fermentation on wheels. And so she asked for help and people helped get her donating money to her to get her going. So that's awesome and great. But I still have that link in the, the show notes for where you can go donate to her as well if you just like what she's doing or you want to help out in case there are anything else any other things that break in the bus or whatnot. So definitely check that out. Other things to check out are Bon Me in Beer. It's a workshop that I'm doing along with Nasala Kombucha in Madison, Wisconsin. And so if you're in the area, you should definitely check out the link for that. It's a farm to fermentation series, and this is the first one we're doing. It's going to be a lot of fun. There are going to be some beer pairing and Bon Me vegetable fermentation. We're going to have a CSA box of stuff. And so it's not like an authentic Bon Me sandwich, but both bread fermentation as well as like we'll have a CSA box that's going to, we're just going to open up when we're there and start walking through the different ways that we could ferment the different things in there and then put them in delicious sandwiches. And of course there'll be fish sauce and and baguette breads and different things. It'll be a lot of fun. Pretty laid back class on a Wednesday night, September 3rd, I believe. And so that again, that will be in the show notes. So definitely check it out. And also coming up relatively soon is the Reedsburg Fermentation Fest, which is in Wisconsin again. Again, sorry, this is very Wisconsin bent for all of you people that aren't around here, but it's definitely worth checking out. It's a two week thing on the weekends are the main fermentation related stuff. But throughout the week, you can see the art installations that they have along the country, beautiful countryside in Wisconsin in the Driftless region. So check out the link for the Reedsburg Fermentation Fest. I'll be doing three workshops there. And at one of the workshops, it'll be a little book signing too, uh, at the, for the one that's everyday fermentation that is focused more on the topics within the book. And that brings me also to the everyday fermentation handbook. And thanks to every Everyone that has sent reviews and different stuff regarding that on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or elsewhere. And just thanks for getting the book because I'd love to hear everything that you have to say about it. Positive, negative, positive criticisms, probably a little nicer though, but either way, I'm excited to hear what you think of the book and I'm super excited to have it out and start seeing it get around on the internets. But with all of that aside, I really wanted to talk today about a cheese that is sadly going away and it's rather upsetting to me, and I think that everyone should at least be aware of the circumstances. But before we even get to that, one of our, our regular listeners uh, wrote in, uh, Jeffrey wrote in with a question, which is meant to be kind of thought-provoking and a way of thinking about it. I don't really have any answers yet, and I'm going to leave much of my thoughts uh, regarding it until I have Allison around to bounce ideas off of, or we you know, look into it a little bit more. But here's this question, and we're talking about molds here, and we're talking about uh, genetic modification. Most talk of genetic engineering focuses on gain-of-function changes. Even if gain-of-function changes are controversial, would loss-of-function changes be acceptable? Would fermenters find it acceptable to remove various mycotoxin genes from food molds, penicillium, rhizopus, monosaccus, etc.? 
And then he goes on to say that I, for one, think it would be a wonderful way to not only develop new fermented foods, but maybe we could start saturating our homes with the friendly mold spores so that even when Aspergillus niger hits, it doesn't produce mycotoxins. And so this, if you're not really familiar with mycotoxins or anything around that, uh, this may not make that much sense to you uh, at first, but mycotoxins are going to be things that are produced by different molds. And so the molds that we use in fermentation, uh, Rhizopus oligosporus for tempeh and Aspergillus orzie for, for, for koji and then making miso and sake. These molds do not have the mycotoxins that are again, toxic to humans. Instead, we can use them to make delicious foods. And that's kind of where this question's about. So yeah, obviously a lot of people have issues with genetic modification of foods, but a lot of that is like changing them in ways that may or may not have consequences down the line. Instead though, what consequences could there be of a loss of function? If we take away, if we kind of neuter these molds and create, they would be technically new molds, I would assume. But if we take away their toxic compounds, well then what could we do with them? What kind of new flavors could we get? What kind of ways could we protect food and ferment food and preserve food in different ways? And then I like this idea of spreading around in the the home because then if for, you know, people that are, are more susceptible to mycotoxins or just for everyone's own health and well-being, we could spread around these things so that even if mold I, I would take it as far as even if mold would start to grow on bread or maybe even on your sauerkraut, maybe your home would be so coated with positive mold spores, ones that don't create toxins, that they would outcompete any other mold spores. And so even if you have mold growing on stuff, yeah, sure, it might change the flavors of things, but you might even be able to eat it. I don't know. It seems interesting. I would like to talk about this more in the future, but I would also like to hear what you think of, of that. So send in your comments regarding that genetic modification of molds, not to make them be super molds, but just to kind of make them be weaker molds that can still do great things, but not kill us or make us sick. And speaking of killing and sickness, and this kind of makes me sick. It's kind of sad. It's kind of hits close to home. So if you're familiar with Uplands Dairy, they make a Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese, which is absolutely delicious. It's a longer age cheese, but then they also make a Rush Creek Reserve, which is a cheese that is aged for the minimum of 60 days that the FDA requires for a raw milk cheese. Well, it's not going to be around anymore. And it's because there are too many uncertainties in recent FDA rulings, changes, and just what's going to happen in the future. It's kind of up in the air for people that are in the business of making delicious cheeses, especially raw milk cheeses. Maybe what they make now, by the time it ages, regulation could have changed to make it so that they can't sell that cheese. And that's kind of what's happening here. So Andy Hatch, he's one of the owners of, of Uplands Dairy, and it's just a few miles away from, from me. It's not, it's not very far. And it's a beautiful area. They pasture their cows in very responsible ways and they make cheese. Their main cheese they make, the Pleasant Ridge Reserve, is a cheese that is all about the pastured milk. So getting those cows out in pasture and that milk is used to make their long-aged Pleasant Ridge Reserve. And that one is all about making the flavors are the complexity and flavors that come from pastured cow milk is what is unlocked by that long aging process. So in the fall, when there isn't the pastured milk to use, they are instead making this Rush Creek Reserve. Well, now they're just going to sell that milk because 
they want to at least make some return on it because it's so uncertain about the Rush Creek Reserve, they're not going to make it anymore. It was super popular and people are really upset about this. I mean, so much so that like some, because it comes out around the holiday period. So cheesemongers are definitely selling this to people. And it's something that people don't necessarily get to try that much because already it's a cheese that's similar to a French style cheese. That's also a raw milk cheese, but that cheese is aged for about half as long. So we're talking like 30 ish days as opposed to 60 days that the FDA has been requiring since 1949, not because there is any real danger in those raw milk cheeses, at least not in the traditional ways that they're made, but because the FDA has been hard on cheesemakers. And so it's just one of those things where cheese in the United States, cheesemakers, they have, they've got it tough, I would say. And so this really is a big deal. Jean Carpenter, she does the Cheese Underground uh, blog and it's, it's a great uh, Wisconsin blog all about cheesemaking across the nation. And Here's her quote. The death of Rush Creek Reserve should act as the canary in the coal mine for all American raw milk artisan cheeses, because just as our great American artisan cheese movement is in serious full swing, the FDA has basically declared a war on raw milk cheese, end quote. And so here we have a person that that writes a lot about cheese that's very much so focused on the industry, and she was a great resource when the more most recent debacle that was going on with aging cheese on wood boards. That seems like it's okay. And people aren't freaking out about it the same way, but the FDA isn't necessarily predictable. They might even backtrack on that one and change the the ruling and make wood boards uh, an issue again. We'll just have to kind of see, but Andy Hatch, one of the the makers and owners of Uplands Dairy that makes this Rush Creek Reserve, he sent out an email last week and he said, food safety officials have been unpredictable at best in their recent treatment of soft raw milk cheeses. And until our industry is given clear and consistent guidance, we are forced to stop making these cheeses, end quote. That's really the sad part is that we have something that's legal, that has won awards, that has been so well received and no one's gotten sick from it. Here we have just because of the, the financial risk involved, they can't make this cheese because they cannot be certain that they will be able to sell it. And that's way too much investment in time, labor, and product to not have something that's sellable in 60 days time. So the reason, and and again, uh, Gene Carpenter, I'll put a few different links in the show notes for this, but Gene Carpenter does a great way of kind of laying out what the different issues are. What are the uncertainties that people are facing like Andy Hatch? And it, they seem to be the first ones so far that are doing this of just are not going to make a cheese. But the FDA, there are three main things. The, one of them being the the aging the cheeses on wooden boards. It may not be a dead issue. It might still be coming back. I mean, we just don't know because the FDA says different things and the inspectors are saying different things. So it really depends. But the the FDA, one of the main things is they're considering changing the 60-day aging rule, which is, was, again, imposed in 1949. And some academics are even speculating that the rule will be increased to 90 or 120 days within the next year. And that's ridiculous for one, but... It's important for something like Rush Creek Reserve, which already is modeled after a cheese that is aged for about 30 days. And Andy Hatch was able to create a cheese that still stayed soft and aged the minimum of 60 days, which is tough because when you have a soft cheese like that, it might get too hard. It might get too salty. It might start to have some off flavors or different things like that. Much easier, I would say, to ferment at a shorter time period than 60 days. So 90 or 120 days kind of just makes it impossible to make this cheese. That's something that might change soon. 
And then there's the other part that the FDA is focusing on, and they're talking about enforcing non-toxigenic E. coli. So E. coli is everywhere. And E. coli, the kind that can make you sick, and then there's non-toxigenic. So again, kind of like Jeffrey's question that I was talking about earlier today, like there are, you know, molds that can make us sick. There are molds that can, that won't make us sick. And there is E. coli that will make us sick. And there's E. coli that will not make us sick. But now they want to enforce the non-toxigenic E. coli levels. So in 2010, the FDA kind of like snuck in and changed the standard. Most industry professionals were unaware of this change until seeing the aftermath of it, because originally it was E. coli in raw milk had to be less than 10,000 NPM per gram. They changed it to less than 10 NPM per gram. So from 10,000 to 10, that's a huge difference. The FDA seems kind of weird. They're also going about enforcing it by purchasing raw milk cheeses from distributors and then testing them for pathogens and then showing up at the cheese factories for a three-day investigative inspection. So they're cracking down on these levels. But if you talk to raw milk cheese producers, they say it's virtually impossible to consistently produce a raw milk cheese that has less than 10 parts of non-toxigenic E. coli per gram. We're not talking about deadly stuff. We're not talking about toxic stuff. We're just talking about E. coli. Like, it's, it's, like, it's like those commercials that say things about washing hands and everything and about like showing all these freaky bacteria and microbes. And the reality is that 99.99999% of bacteria are okay and aren't going to hurt us. There is only the small amount that are actually going to do something and harm us. And this E. coli, this non-toxigenic E. coli is one of those that's not going to hurt people. So there we might have to say goodbye to raw milk cheeses in general if that ends up becoming something that is heavily enforced. So pretty much raw milk cheeses in the United States is kind of up in the air. And it's very sad because raw milk cheeses have the potential to be very delicious. And they offer something that is much different than other cheeses that are available. Check into this more, look at it, figure out, you know, if there's anything you can do. I don't think that at this point there is much that anyone can do, but there was that groundswell of people, both people in the cheese industry and those that consume cheese made a big deal about the wood, wooden board issue. So hopefully this will also be something that doesn't just sneak by the radar and end up being enforced and shutting down other amazing cheeses. So if you know of any raw milk cheeses that, you know, might also be affected by this, I'd be interested in hearing which ones like you would really enjoy and would be really sad to see go away. And if you enjoy the Rush Creek Reserve, I'm sorry, it looks like you might have to cancel your holiday plans this year because it's just not going to be available. You'll find all these links in the show notes. If you'd like to reach out to us, then you can find us on Twitter at FirmUp, on Facebook at FirmUp, or you can send us an email at podcast at FirmUp.com. And so until next time, Firm up.